Hello and welcome to this episode of a Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Galen Nuttall, and as always, this is the spot where I interview people who are up to amazing things, supporting and enhancing the lives of physicians, especially Canadian physicians. Now, I have a quick question before we hop on over to the episode. Have you ever wanted to work with a financial planner, pay them for their advice or a plan, but not have to buy a product from them? I got good news for you. I do that. It's called fee-based planning, where you pay for a plan that answers your top questions like, should I pay off debt or invest? Am I making the most of my corporation? How should I invest inside of my corporation? What do I need to do to be on track for retirement? And much, much more. If you want to know more and are wondering if you're a good fit for fee-based planning, head on over to galenhelpsdocs.com. That's G-A-L-E-N helpsdocs.com. Read up more about it and book a free call where you and I will talk and see if you're a good fit for fee-based planning. And now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of A Clean Bill of Wealth. And today I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Zhao. And Stephanie practices addictions medicine at Sunnybrook Hospital and is a lecturer for the financial literacy curriculum at the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine. In addition to financial education, she also does research in equity, diversity, and inclusion, and co-developed the diversity mentorship program at U of T. Stephanie is a strong advocate for equalizing student knowledge when it comes to personal finance and often combines her two interests in financial education and diversity and inclusion in her lectures. She began by giving affordable medical school webinars to the community of support students before expanding these lectures to a four-year curriculum and a curriculum for family medicine residents. She's also the creator of the Physicians Financial Wellness Conference for early to late career physicians. And in her spare time, she blogs about personal finance on Instagram and YouTube at Breaking Bad Debt and about equity, diversity, and inclusion on Twitter at Stephanie Zhao. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks, Galen. Thank you for having me. I know. I'm very excited. Uh, Thank you for being on for sure. And I'm very excited about the conversation uh, we're about to have. and I checked out your YouTube videos. I really liked the one about um, Squid Game and life insurance. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. I was trying to figure out a way of making life insurance interesting. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like a very boring topic to teach. It definitely can be a boring topic. But yeah, that was a really good one. If anyone's ever watched Squid Game, or even if you haven't, it's a good video to check out. Um, so yeah, so I think one of the things I'd love to kick it off with is just um, you know, with with this background around financial literacy for physicians, um, you know, the, the participating, you know, working as a lecturer for the financial literacy curriculum. Uh, if you could tell me a bit about, you know, what is it, you know, why is it that you're so interested uh, in financial literacy for physicians? Yeah, for sure. So at the beginning of all of my lectures, I always try to share with my students my why for starting a financial literacy curriculum and why I became interested in financial education. And the reason is so that they can kind of see the value of what I'm teaching. So the why actually came from my upbringing, which starts with my parents and I immigrating to Canada. We only had $1,000 and three suitcases. So at the time, we lived in subsidized housing um, near the Chinatown area. And uh, my parents at the time were making a minimum wage of $8 per hour. They were working on assembly lines and restaurants. So money was very tight. And this experience actually gave me my first financial education lesson, mostly on saving money and working hard. And while, you know, working hard and saving, it's important. It's not exactly the full picture of what it means to be financially independent or financially knowledgeable, for instance. So I had always thought that, you know, if you lived a minimalist lifestyle, you worked really hard and you saved everything you could have, like you have, that is enough to get by. And in fact, that is actually what my parents did. They put a lot of savings as cash, sometimes in drawers, just because maybe, I don't know, the language barrier or maybe the lack of financial literacy when interacting with the financial services industry. So it was actually in undergrad and in medical school when I first really started to educate myself about personal finance, because those kind of things like tuition, living, and textbook expenses were high. And it felt hard to keep up, you know, working several part-time jobs, trying to cut costs as much as possible. So in feeling that financial pressure, I basically did what any typical student would do. And I just went on Google and I searched for answers on things like, how do you afford university? Uh, what should students know about finances or even like how do credit cards work? Because at that time, I didn't know too much about credit cards. My parents had always taught me to use cash to pay for everything. 
which actually isn't exactly a good idea if you're trying to build a credit score that's needed to find rental housing. So it's kind of like, you know, that quote, fish don't know that they're in water when it comes to the financial situations of some of my classmates. Um, When you don't really have to worry about money, you don't really think about it as much. And I know, I guess ironically in med school, we had lectures on the social determinants of health with income being one of the main determinants of health outcomes. We were taught to tell low income patients to file their taxes, where when I actually think most of my classmates have never filed their own taxes before. So they probably may not have known about something like the GST, HSD credit, for example, which can be a benefit for uh, either low income or even students, for example. Um, So when it comes to tax time, I actually had done my own taxes because the cost of an accountant was pretty inhibitory to my family. And at that time, we actually didn't know about the free tax clinics or maybe they didn't exist um, several years ago. But I guess a lot of my classmates, they had parents who were accountants or they used their family accountant. So I actually became interested in financial literacy because finances were something that were all, that was always on my mind. And I figured for the minority of students who are in the same situation as me, who didn't have an accountant or didn't have a financially savvy family member, it was sort of the same for them too. So then I started giving those affordable, like affording medical school webinars that you mentioned. And those were for low-income students of the Community of Support program. Um, it's a program to help um, underrepresented people get into medicine or other health fields. Um, so the interest from doing those webinars grew in also the non-community support student groups as well. And then I realized there was kind of an unmet demand from students about financial literacy. And as these students graduated and became physicians, that need was still there, but it was just pushed so far down the line because doctors are very busy people and work slash exams often take our attention away from learning about other stuff like finances. So when it came to financial education for physicians, I kind of just started with med students. Then when residents were requesting it from their program, that's when I kind of moved into developing residency curricula on billing. And then I guess this financial education does have two major benefits to doctors, right? Like one is, you know, there's been numerous studies that shows the link between physician mental health, academic performance, and debt levels. So financial literacy is actually a preventative factor for burnout. And the other benefit from doing these uh, financial talks is physicians are actually in a very unique position as a high income earner, but their main, I guess, clientele, quote unquote, um, are low income people. So understanding finances and understanding the affordability of something does actually have an impact on providing better patient-centered care. Yeah, no, it's really cool evolution. I mean, really your own story of, you know, parents putting cash in drawers and paying everything with cash and, you know, just being completely unaware of like tax clinics or like you said, maybe they didn't exist, but unaware of those and unaware of the the, the um, value value of building a credit score um, to be able to, um, you know, do things that you need to do with credit. Actually reminds me when we moved to Canada. So I moved to Canada 10 years ago from Venezuela and I had lived in the States. So I had good credit rating there, but it didn't count for anything here. And so I right. moved here and I think I had a credit card with like a $500 limit for like months before they would raise it because I had zero credit rating. And what you're saying is also reminding me of a conversation I had with a med school student who said, you know, who talked about this, like, oh, their parents were accountants. Like they had classmates whose parents were accountants or classmates who use the family accountant. And they didn't know things like you can negotiate loans. Like you can shop the market when it comes to student loans. You can shop the market when it comes to things like mortgages. Like they felt like they didn't have like some people even going through medical school like don't have that same background of financial savvy they just feel like the institution's going to do what the institution's going to do and i don't have a say and it can make a really big difference um you know one's ability to negotiate certain things one's ability to to navigate that system so i think it's really uh, you know incredible uh, especially the work you're you're mentioning around um you know make you know the talks of medical affordable medical school for people who may not have no clue of 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 whether they can achieve that or not yeah and i agree and especially for um people whose parents might be immigrants um from countries where the banking system is very unstable um you know putting your money in the bank can potentially end up losing your money right so they they trust that if they held the money themselves 
and they were able to see it themselves, then they they knew it wasn't being mismanaged. But they were if they were handing it to an unstable banking system, it could yeah. potentially be mismanaged. It could be invested in you know sketchy things, um, mm-hmm. and that could not. I guess that leaves a lasting mark on um, you know immigrants who are who are coming here and and trying to think about what to do with their money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my experience is Venezuela. I lived there for a long time and accruing a lot of money in an account there made zero sense because inflation was so high. There was no real good way to invest money. Like it didn't make sense. Like, so like most people would try to buy land or property or move their money out of the country, like just different things people did. So, and certainly there's lots more countries where it's a similar problem of the institutions not being um, stable. Yeah. That's very interesting. And then, um, when it comes to uh, financial education for physicians, like what's next for you when it comes to this topic? Yeah. So I talked about how like um, I was involved at the medical student level and then the resident level. So I guess the next step from there would be, um, you know, financial education for attending physicians. Mm. So this November, um, which was financial literacy month, I organized the Canadian physicians financial wellness conference. And this is a philanthropic conference for physicians by physicians. And so this year we donated the $14,075 in uh, conference proceeds to Habitat for Humanity. Um, we've always kept the kit- ticket prices low at like $50 for staff and $25 for student to kind of give that motivation to attend and take action compared to a free event so that we don't have like people who sign up and then decide not to show up. Um, but you know, the, the price is not prohibitive in that it is a high cost to attend. It's, it's actually meant to be like a one-stop shop crash course with diverse speakers, um, all in one place. And, um, as we're seeing in the U.S. and now in Canada, there are a lot of financial literacy courses and conferences out there. For example, in the U.S., right? There's like, they cost like $800 mm-hmm. to $2,000, which for me, I, I feel it widens the gap between those who can and can't afford to be financially literate. So personally, I think, you know, if you had $2,000 to spend on an investing course, you might as well take the money and invest it yourself. I find like in medicine, there's a lot of a culture of, you know, see one, do one, teach one. But sometimes in finance, it's actually the doing and just getting the experience. That's the best teacher. Yeah. No, I saw that. Um, I saw a post about the um, conference. I think it was on your Instagram account. And I was like, really awesome how you raised that money for Habitat for Humanity and that it's a conference for physicians by physicians. And I think, I don't know if this, like the other replay, is the replay on your YouTube channel? I feel like I saw a replay of, a, of the conference. Yeah. So yeah. what we did was we took some highlights, like mm. key points that were discussed or key themes that were discussed throughout the conference. And we put it together into a 30 minute video so that way, instead of attending like a four hour conference, all you're watching is like a 30 minute video that okay. takes all the key points about the, that was covered at the conference. Okay. Very neat. Yeah. Cause I remember watching it. Yeah. It was pretty fast, like from speaker to speaker, but yeah, yeah. I did watch a bit of that and it was really interesting. Yeah. No, that's very cool. And, yeah. um, so one of the things that I know that in our conversation leading up to today, we talked a bit about some of the, um, you know, your interest in uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion with financial education. Um, so what are the, some of the challenges, financial challenges you see faced by women or women of color? Yeah, for sure. So I'll talk a little bit about this, but I'm also going to be very curious on what your opinion on it is as mm-hmm. well. Um, just because I'm sure you work with like many numerous different clients and maybe they might also um, face certain challenges too. So I guess like whenever I tell people, I teach personal finance and sorry, excuse me, personal finance and also do research in um, equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, Other physicians and I uh, usually, um, I guess people um, usually have a very surprised look on their face, kind of like as if those are two very separate things, Mm. but they're actually not. In fact, even the language we use in EDIB, such as minority tax or diversity dividend, or even the term equity, it borrows from financial terms. So, you know, why do people of color or specifically women of color have a hard time building their net worth? So I know you have a great episode from Dr. Michelle Cohen on the gender wage gap as one of the causes where she kind of talked about the discrepancy between billing codes for procedures for females versus males. Or she said, um, you know, women tend to spend more time with patients which can be a disadvantage when you have fee-for-service billing 
that tends to favor high volume, quicker interactions. But when we talk about intersectionality, which is when different disadvantages compound on each other, often for women of color, for instance, we also have the minority tax on top of that. So what this term means is additional responsibilities and expectations placed on minorities or underrepresented members of any organization to engage in diversity initiatives. So often they might look like being asked to join um, equity, diversity, inclusion committees, giving lectures or workshops on these topics. But unfortunately, these roles are not paid, nor do they hold as much value as doing like clinical research when it comes to promotions. So there were several times I've been asked to teach others about EDI or sit on EDI education committees. And then when I ask, you know, is there funding for these workshops I give? Because I often have to cancel clinic and, you know, cancel the paid work that I usually do to um, do these talks. The answer is usually no, this is a volunteer role or no, there is traditionally no funding for these kind of things. Um, or often I remember being told, you know, oh, you should do this because it'll look good on your CV for promotions. But then when you ask, um, but then when you get asked to do all these work, and then in the end, you never actually get asked about starting the promotions mm -hmm. process, right? So if you really want to value EDI work, you have to put a value on EDI work, in my opinion. Um, I think the other aspect of it is as a visible minority entering a space where I'm not represented, I do feel a sense of gratitude for being let into the space. So you feel a pressure to work twice as hard to prove that you're worthy of being there. And so in the sense of feeling grateful for what's given to you, you're kind of hesitant to negotiate. You kind of just take things as they are, even if they might not feel fair, because you have that feeling like you owe the hospital or you owe the institution something for them taking a chance at hiring or selecting you. It's kind of hard to articulate this type of mindset, but I think it's also what holds women of color back when it comes to asking to be paid for work done or negotiating when it comes to being recognized for diversity work. So something like I've always tried to mention on Instagram when people message me actually is, um, you know, someone told me like they actually tried asking if this could be paid mm. and then they actually found out it was, but they've been doing this for several oh, wow. years unpaid until they finally asked. So I think there's no harm in asking. Um, and then finally, I guess the other thing I just wanted to mention, especially for immigrant families, um, you know, as a daughter, there's kind of this expectation of being the caregiver for the family. So when you get a paycheck, a part of that is actually sent back to the family, whereas traditional budgeting advice says, you know, you have to pay yourself first. Um, especially if you're from a collectivist culture, which many immigrants are from, um, you know, paying your family first is supporting them. Often the kids are the parents' retirement funds. And the term for this is called intergenerational debt because unlike traditional forms of debt like student loans or mortgage, that's considered good debt because when you pay it off, it actually increases your credit score. So you can take more loans in the future or you could get more favorable lending rates. However, intergenerational debt doesn't usually have that advantage um, and it also can prevent you from accumulating that network uh, net worth. Um, so I guess this is in contrast to another term, which is intergenerational wealth, mm -hmm. which might look like, um, you know, you've seen in the news, parents gifting their children down payment for a house or leaving an inheritance or assets to their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that, that episode was a very interesting one around um, gender pay gap in medicine. Cause I, I, you know, I, I very admittedly went into that episode with zero idea of what that looked like. Cause I just thought, I don't know, you build, you build what you bill and you know, it is what it is. Everyone makes the same, you know, like it didn't really hit me. And um, yeah, one of the things that we talked about was how uh, studies have shown that patients expect more time from female physicians, um, family physicians in particular, but I mean, any physician uh, and, I, and my family physician is, is a woman. And now I'm really self-conscious when I go to the doctor, because I'm like, am I demanding too much of her time? Like I went to see her recently for this ringing in my ears and I didn't mention the episode, but it was kind of funny because I was like, am I, am I demanding more of her time than, than I would if, if, if she were a male doctor, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And the term for that is actually yeah. called pink collar jobs, right? Oh. Where the expectations that the woman will, you know, it, it's expected that it's better. Like women are better for those mm. jobs. They're more attentive. Yes. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that was yeah, that was another thing that Dr. Cohen was mentioning was like early on a lot of times they'll hear things like, you know, well this specialty isn't good for a woman because, you know, it's long hours or you have to be on your feet a lot or you have to even sometimes they say you have to have bigger hands to do these procedures and like things that are not probably not true, like not true, but like perceived and early on kind of embedded of like this is this is like we're guiding you towards this ultimate result. Um one of the things I just have to mention about um that well yeah and i and i think it's really interesting what you said around you said it's hard to articulate but like being a part of a group that's underrepresented like you can sometimes have this unconscious bias of i'm kind of i should be grateful for being in this space because there's not a lot of us here and kind of holding back from you know maybe taking a stand for uh you know being paid for work done or negotiating and that's that's pretty fascinating like i um i hadn't thought about that yeah. The, the thing I was wondering for you is, um, so from talking to my family, who's like, as we are in, immigrants and I'm talking to other immigrant families, do you ever notice that um, a lot of immigrant families don't have financial planners? Yeah. So it's a really good question. So my, uh, so um, okay. So to be transparent, like my wife, uh, her family is originally from Iran. They kind of lost everything and then moved to Canada uh, in, after the revolution in the late 70s. And so every culture is different. I have a lot of clients from various backgrounds. Um, what I find is that, um, yes, there is oftentimes a mistrust of the system. Um a lot of times, a lot of times and in general, people don't know how to engage a financial planner. Like they don't know you know, a lot of times people think, oh, it's going to be, it's going to cost me more money to invest with a financial planner than if I did it at like a bank branch, which isn't usually true. Um, but that's just the perception. Um, the other thing that I find is a lot of um, immigrants. Um, and I mean, it's not, you know, some Canadian born people I'm sure feel this way too, but I feel like it's a little bit higher among different cultures is the desire to own property as a tangible yeah, asset. And like, that's the goal. That's the dream. Um, you know, I'll hear a lot of things around, oh, so-and-so bought property and then they turned around and sold it. They made a lot of money or so-and-so bought property and then they, um, they, they rented it. Um, that's one thing that I find. I think that tangible assets are more popular among a lot of immigrant um, cultures, um, either from a background of that's what they wanted to do back home and couldn't, or from the background of, I need to touch what I own. Because I've seen mm. institutions crumble and I've seen things, you know, uh, banking institutions vanish um, or inflation, like a lot of countries. I mean, when I lived in Venezuela, even before it got really bad, the inflation was, I mean, it was crazy. Like it was, you know, saving money in the local currency made zero sense because you just would have less purchasing power, like such significantly less purchasing power, even just a year after you'd put that money away. So everyone would set their money into other currencies like dollars, um, either US or Canadian uh, to come back. So I'd say property is a pretty big one. Um, sometimes families get together to buy a property. like, And a lot of times people don't know some of the implications of that uh, from an estate planning perspective or from a tax perspective. Um, I've seen some pretty big mistakes made around that where the wrong person owned the property. So now they're actually going to have to pay taxes on the property or someone gift, you know, someone transferred it to another name before they passed away and they shouldn't have done that because now they have to like pay taxes. So there's, there's, I've seen a lot of things kind of go wrong with different, um, different approaches. Yeah. I actually might like ask you a little bit more about that because I think like property and, you know, real estate is so big in mm. the like immigrant populations. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my parents, immigrant friends, people I know, they don't really talk about stocks because they can't imagine a stock, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is that? Um, or even like when you're on, like I'm a crypto NFTs, oh, like those kind of things. It's like, <laughs> what What are even those things? Um, but yeah, real estate, like they can touch it, you know, but I'm actually really curious because you mentioned you've seen a lot of mistakes, especially in the immigrant populations where they just didn't know. Um, what would you say is probably the biggest mistakes? I'm just personally curious, like the biggest yeah. mistake one. Well, I talked to a doctor just the other day um, from an immigrant. He moved, his family moved to Canada, I think when he was like 10 and um, they got in together as a family to buy a home. And really what, I mean, what they should have done in all likelihood, and I haven't dug deep into the specific situation, but I've seen it happen before where let's say a child, like, like, like the, the generation of the physician in Canada buys a home for the parent and puts it in their own name. 
that's going to count as a secondary residence for that physician if they already have their own residence. And when they go to sell it, they're going to have to pay capital gains on the what they've earned. Like if, if they go to sell it, then, oh, now it's worth more. You have to pay taxes because it's not your principal residence, just as if you owned a cottage, the same thing would happen. And so I see that happen quite a bit where for whatever reason, they're not putting it in the name of the actual person who's living in the property, um, which can be a problem, but from a tax perspective, or I've seen um, where people, uh, when they were doing their estate planning, um, instead of just picking up the phone and asking someone like a financial planner or a lawyer or uh, you know, accountant, you know, hey, should I keep the, the, the home in my name like when I pass away or should I put it in my kid's name? I've seen parents transfer property to kids' names. And then there's a similar problem where one of the few tax-free um, things that you can pass intergenerationally is your principal residence. So like if you own a principal residence that's that's skyrocketed in value and you pass away, your kids just get to get it. Like maybe it goes through a little bit of probate, like or not probate, uh, estate administrative tax, 1.5%, not you know, not the not the big not a big deal compared to like capital gains where you might lose 25% of the growth. So that's the other one I've seen. Is where they they give that property to a child or sell that property to a child because they think it's going to be easier. Kind of like having a joint bank account when if you're gonna like when you get older, because they're like, oh, it'll be easier when I pass away. They'll have access to the money, um, which also I sometimes recommend against doing. But um, that, those are the two big ones I'd say is just that ownership, like like missing out on that tax free, the tax free nature of the principal residence. I'd say is one of the biggest things I see. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the former, especially when I do like work with financial aid. I noticed that a lot of. Um, physicians who actually have that earning power to put a down payment on for a residence for their parents. Um, they do that, but then they put it in their own name because then it's kind of like an investment for them. Mm-hmm. But then I guess if you put it in your parents' name and the parents didn't have any previous property they were renting, for example, it would have been better from like a capital gains perspective from a per- mm-hmm. like from a, from the parents' name. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. in that case, would you say that it would be better if um, when you're buying the property to put all three individuals' names on there? Yeah. I mean, every every situation is different, but I mean, if the person who's going to live in the home can be the person on the on, who owns the home, that's the most straightforward yeah. you know, from a tax perspective. Like if you are the principal resident and you go to sell your property, you don't have to pay any taxes on it. But if it's, it's so, I'm, I'm, it's, so yeah, right now I have this case that I'm working with is two brothers bought into the house for the parents. Now they want to sell it. Um, one of the brothers is now living in the States, which adds a whole nother layer of tax complexity. Um, so the good thing is I have a couple of really good accountants um, who I'm like, you know, uh, talking with about like, what can they be doing here? Because, um, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a bit of a puzzle to solve as to like what to do the best. Um, the other thing I'll talk about when it comes to property is very quickly, like you were saying, you've got property, which is tangible, um, stocks, which is intangible, but most you know, a lot of people get it at least like, okay, I get it. I'm going to buy some well-known companies. You know, enough of those companies are going to increase in value over the course of my lifetime that I'm going to benefit from this. And then you talk about, you know, like um, crypto and NFTs, which is vague for even people who understand stocks, like might really be there. Um, I guess what I've seen is that I think what I find in a lot of immigrant families is they think the only path to success is property. Like yeah, they I really, agree. I've seen that a lot. Yeah, they're like that is it, you know, and they really perpetuate that among their friends and their family of like this is the way that you accumulate wealth. It is property, and sometimes that can be really burdensome to own property. And I always say to people like, look, if you want to own property, own property. But I meet people who feel compelled to own property and compelled to become landlords and compelled to like go through that. And a lot of times you can create pretty much the same thing through good investing. Um, it doesn't look exactly the same. Like you can't go out and like, you know, check the the windows of your stock portfolio <laughs> or your your portfolio. But it's it's I mean, if you understand the way that the modern market works, like it's I have no concerns about you know long-term losses in the market. Like yes, short term they happen, but long term no. So that's the other thing. I find that um Sometimes the next generation still feels that compulsion to own property, even if they don't want to. Like I've met people who are really miserable as landlords 
and they own these multiple properties and they're like, I really don't like this. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it doesn't, you don't have to just do it this way. Like you could actually take some of that money, invest it and end up with a very similar result down the line um, with maybe some, with maybe less headaches. So if, if someone doesn't love it, I don't think they should do it. If they love it, I'm like, go nuts. Like I know people who really love it and it's like, great, own those different properties, get that rental income. But if someone doesn't love it, it's not the only way to get to do things. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think um, I'm also guilty of the, uh, I believe property is the way kind of <laughs> mentality. Because um, I guess like for myself and my partner, so my partner is black and mm-hmm. his family has always said to him, in this family, we own, we don't rent. Mm-hmm. Because when you've been owned for a long time and oh, now wow. you have the opportunity to own, you you should own, right? And yeah. I guess that's in reference to to slavery. Yeah. So that's why in for my partner, he does a lot of real estate stuff. Um, his whole family does that as well. And I think like for real estate, like for, from my personal perspective, I can't speak for him, but I like the um, active nature of it. A lot of people think of real estate as passive income, mm-hmm. but the way I think about it is actually very much active income for me. Um, because when the, let's say when the stock market goes down, right? Uh, you can't really control like, mm-hmm. cause you're not on the board of directors um, of that, of that stock, of that company. Um, but for example, when the pandemic happened and rental prices dropped, you can pivot into other things, right? You could pivot into quarantine, uh, housing or, um, short-term rentals, which is actually a source of active income for me as well. So I personally like that uh, aspect of control of when it comes to real estate, but I don't think anyone, not everyone likes that. Mm -hmm. Um, because they they would rather you know just have the money come in passively rather mm-hmm. than having to be actively working on the property and managing the property. Yeah, absolutely, and and like the, a very interesting conversation uh, around passive versus active and real estate and uh, long term tax implications of owning lots of property. That's another thing that I see people yeah, like unaware of. Topic. Very unaware. On tangent. Of. Yeah, like I've, yeah. I have a friend. I have a friend who owns ten properties, and he's like, "Hey, Galen, will you do a financial plan for me?" And really, at the end of the day, I was like how much of these do you want your kids to inherit? Because you are going to have to pay tons of capital gains when you pass away. And, and so you'll only be able to pass down a, a, some of the properties, not all of them, or where's the tax bill going to come from? Um, but yeah, I'll get, uh, one example is a friend of mine who lives here in Belleville. He, he's um, he's an immigrant and he owns multiple properties. And every time I met him, we were talking about it. You know, and he's like, ah, Galen, I just don't really see the point in investing. Like I've got these properties, they're generating a regular income. Life's pretty good. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one day we sat down and he was he'd had a really bad experience with a tenant uh, we went to have coffee and he was like, um, splattered with paint cause he'd had someone trash a unit and he had to go paint it and all this stuff. And then I asked him, I said, why do you own properties? Like, what is it about it that you love? And he's like, well, I just love the regular income that comes from it. And I did the math and I, and I, and I looked at if he had sold all his properties and put all that money into an annuity, which I don't, I don't do a lot of annuities cause it, it, it's basically a place where you put your money and then you get a guaranteed income for the rest of your life, which yeah, I don't I don't do a lot of them, but I just did it as an example. And I was like, if you sold all these properties Is he close to retirement age? Oh yeah, he's in his 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, yeah. Sorry to be clear. He's in his 70s. Um, and he's just kind of done. Like, you know, I, I met him and he was like exhausted. He'd been painting this apartment and everything. Right. And I and it, literally if he just sold all his properties and put it on an annuity, he'd get the same net benefit of of regular monthly income that would be completely secure, guaranteed, independent of the market. And he wouldn't have to worry about anyone trashing his annuity and painting his annuity. And so it's a bit of an extreme example, but it is interesting that sometimes you can really create the same thing that you want in different ways. And so I I guess it's just always good to look at your options. Yeah. I'm just surprised he's 70 and doing that and not having a property manager do he's, it or something. He's a go-getter. Like he's he's, he's yeah. an energetic guy. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, no. And that's just something uh, that's just an example of um, you know, someone close to home who's, you know, yeah, and his background is he's an immigrant and, you know, property was the way to go. And uh and I mean not to say like, I mean, you know, if anyone who bought property in the GTA 20 years ago is looking like a genius because like, you know, I met someone, another guy, uh, he moved here recently. He's, he, he bought a whole bunch of property in um, Danforth area, I think. And he's like, yeah, I bought it in the nineties. 
and I look like a genius because now it's worth like gobs of money. Um, but he's like, I didn't really, you know, who knew what was going to happen? Like, I didn't know that uh, the property was going to skyrocket or anyone who bought property like before the big boom in the last little bit, um, you know, also looks like a bit of a genius, but anyways, um, yeah, no, those are, those are interesting topics around, around how different people approach different things. Um, so to get back to a little bit to the intergenerational debt and wealth conversation, um, it's a big topic and it's, and it's, and I do, I do see it even, even for my Canadian born physicians, like some, like my dad's a physician and his, his parents said they, he grew up in poverty, like, like hit the family home that he grew up in had rocks on the roof to keep it from blowing away. Like in strong winds, wow. like, I mean, it, like Eastern shore of Maryland, like very impoverished area and his parents. And so he got a full scholarship to Johns Hopkins, uh, to Florida state became a nephrologist. And he was in part, his parents, I wouldn't say retirement plan, but he did get to the position where he could buy them a nice house, you know, take care of them a bit. Um, but his parents said to him, they said, when you grow up, you're either going to be famous or a doctor <laughs> because they were like, we want to break this cycle of poverty. Right. And, and my dad's a very intelligent guy. So he was able to pull it off. Um, but um, I just bring that up because he's not an immigrant, but he still had that same expectation just because of his family. They said, you got to make money you got to break this cycle and you're going to do it by either becoming famous or a doctor. Um, but, um, you know, certainly when it came to the question of intergenerational debt or wealth, um, you know, that's played a role in my own family where maybe my dad's parents' generation didn't leave him any wealth, but my parents probably have the potential to leave me something because they've built up something. So what do you see as like some ways to overcome the intergenerational um, debt and actually build intergenerational wealth? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I guess like for ways to overcoming financial barriers, often it requires a systems level change. But I just want to be a bit more practical and talk about what can be done on an individual level. So for me, it first required a mindset change from feeling like I have to work twice as hard to prove that I'm worthy of my role to thinking that I actually belong here and I got here because I was qualified to get here. Um, the other aspect is now that I'm a staff physician, I'm no longer facing that power differential that I used to face as a resident or a student. So asking for whether there's funding to give talks or to join committees actually becomes easier compared to when I was a resident. However, just by asking sets a precedent for ensuring that those unpaid jobs do end up getting paid for other colleagues and for residents and students down the line in the future. Um, I've also had like, I guess, residents and, um, physicians like message me saying that they were just so surprised about this funding. But uh, often a lot of organizations being how big they are, especially how much tuition students are paying, a lot of organizations, institutions, they can come up with the funding. And in the end, they did end up getting paid. Um, the other aspect is at those um, equity, diversity and inclusion committee meetings, I'm also very vocal about advocating for funding to be directed towards that diversity work. So whether I'm mentoring underrepresented students or mentees, I'm very open to talking about salaries and income so that they know what to expect at baseline. I know that there's often this stigma around talking about your income with other people. Um, and I remember reading, there was an article in Forbes magazine kind of around March this year about income transparency and how important that is as a way to mitigate wage gaps. And I think having that open conversation with uh, trainees or even with like colleagues, for example, that is one way that can really benefit um, trainees who don't have a family member to kind of have the comfort levels to talk about this with. Um, I've definitely seen a lot of trainees who sign locums with unfavorable pay or unexpectedly high workloads just because they didn't know what they were signing into. Um, you know, and simply also because they just didn't know or have a network to talk about these uh, contracts and income with. And finally, I guess when we talk about intergenerational wealth, we naturally think about inheritances and trusts. But I actually think passing down financial knowledge is the most impactful way of producing intergenerational wealth. Um, you know, teaching your kids about savings, self-control around spending, and I remember Mark Soth at the conference said, mm -hmm. you know, just because we can afford something doesn't mean that we're going to be buying it. And that's something that's important to teach to your kids to prevent them from getting spoiled, I guess, um, so that they're not thinking about, oh, I like mom and dad is a doctor. Mm -hmm. They can afford anything. They have six figure salaries. 
they should buy me this when in fact, you know, it doesn't always work that way. Um, the other good point that I remember he made was about, um, you know, don't expect your kids to end up being in the same income level as you as well, mm-hmm. right? You might be having a doctor's income, but let's say they didn't want to be a doctor. They wanted to be something else. Maybe it could be lower paying. So it's also important to kind of establish expectations for a baseline lifestyle such that they don't they don't have that expectation in their head about, you know, regardless of whatever income strata I'm in, I still can live that same high level of lifestyle, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is just, you know, investing in their RESP early. Those are other ways of uh, doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, establishing f- financial boundaries with kids and other family members too. Because when we're talking about the intergenerational debt, you know, sometimes family members will ask you for money because they know that you're a doctor. They know that you mm-hmm. have money. So they they feel like you have that expectation of giving them money for for them either helping you um, get to where you are, but it's also important to set aside that those boundaries there too. So how I ended up doing this was, um, for example, like I I will just put aside money into my parents' TFSA or RSP because they've actually never contributed to mm. those accounts before, so they don't have any retirement savings. So instead of just giving it to them, like handing it to them, no questions asked. I would often say, okay, I'm going to put this money for your retirement for you into those accounts. Um, Other ways of doing something that can, I guess, help family members out too, is what I've done is um, income splitting with parents. I know that a lot of people income split with um, spouses, but you can also do that with parents as well, especially if they've actually met the uh, 20-hour requirement, particularly for parents who have lost jobs during the pandemic or are facing unemployment. Um, income splitting is another way where you can help your parents out, but they can also help you out as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm actually curious, what, what other advice would um, you give on this as well? Yeah. I mean, and I love what you're saying about, um, you know, some of the intergenerational wealth you can pass on isn't necessarily just the money, but it's also the mindset, the the self-control, you know, all those things. And that's certainly something, I mean, I have small, I mean, my kids are now, well, not so small anymore. They're 10 and 13, but I know that for me, ever since I gave them an allowance, I was like keeping my eye out. Like, are they saving? Are they not, you know, are they, are they waiting for something? Are they blowing at all? And, you know, really it's a huge thing to help. Um, yeah. A huge thing. And then I love what you're saying about the practical side of, you know, being incorporated, being able to, to pay one's uh, parents, you know, uh, split income and like, you know, if they're working uh, in, in your um, business and corporation, it's a way to, to spread the money around. Um, yeah, it's a really, really solid question. And and what you said about putting the money straight into the investment account, like all those are really amazing. You know, just like you said, like, you know, p- potentially if you gave the parents the money, they wouldn't even necessarily invest it or they wouldn't even necessarily put it in a tax preferential account. They might just leave it in a savings account or, you know, like you were saying, like, you know, putting them in, putting in the drawers or something like that. Yeah, you know? they, they ended yeah. up buying like furniture and like a new car. And then I come <laughs> home and I was like, where did all this stuff come from? So they spent it on stuff, uh, which, you know, they didn't need. Yeah. But, uh, you actually mentioned a really good point, and I'm actually a, a quick question for you. Actually, yeah. um, you mentioned that you give your kids allowances, and for me, I've actually never got an allowance. Never, it's mm. not really a thing, especially in immigrant families. Yeah. How do you decide whether to give your kids an allowance <laughs> or not? Because yeah. if it was my kids and they asked me for an allowance, I, I'll just tell them, you know, I allow you to live in this house. Yeah, I allow yeah. you <laughs> to use the water and the heat. <laughs> oh, so that's your allowance. But like, yeah. how do you decide how much allowance to even give them? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I think my wife and I, when we sat down to start figuring out this whole allowance thing, we just kind of Googled it. And it was like, I think it was something like whatever their age is, that's how much they get a month or something like that. So when my son was really small, he got like a toonie a month or something. And then yes. it kind of gradually went up. But what I find really fascinating is... Um, you know, we started when my, my son was, maybe he was two or three. So he was just, and, and it was really funny because we'd give him his, his toonie or whatever, and he'd go out and spend it immediately, like on chocolate or uh, actually I thought I was pretty proud of him. He'd go buy a Kinder Egg and I'm like, that's not a bad thing to go buy because a Kinder Egg, you got the chocolate, you got the toy that comes right. inside. Like anyways, but I remember also being freaking out. I was like, oh my gosh, he's not saving money. Like he's just, um, he's just spending it as soon as he gets it. But then a few years down the line, my son said, you know what? He's like, instead of getting a monthly allowance, could I just get it annually instead? 
And I was like, okay. And so we, now we just give it to him on his birthday. It's his allowance and it's the money he, he would have gotten regularly through the year. And then we opened up savings accounts for them so they can deposit money. Um, they can pay for things. So I think for us, it's been a really great, I think for my kids, it's been fantastic because there was that period of them having to really think about like in, in the early years, it was kind of like, as soon as they had the money, they spent it. And then little by little, it was like, is it really worth it? Like, let me sleep on it. Let me look around for a better deal. Like, can we go to a thrift store and find the same thing? Like my son loved going to thrift stores when he was little because he realized he could either go to Toys R Us and blow half a year of allowance on one toy, or he could go to a thrift store and spend like a couple of weeks of allowance on a toy. And he'd, sometimes he'd even find the same thing just used. Um, so yeah, that's been my experience with it. Like um, it's been pretty good. And the other just, thing, like, make yeah. the allowance go up by like by inflation or like how Pretty, do you well, yeah, no, how yeah, much just, to increase it? Yeah, it just goes up by like a dollar a month every every okay. year they get older. I guess like my son now, I think he gets, yeah, I think he gets about, um, yeah, about like thirteen dollars a month if you were to like. And he's ten, right? He's thirteen now, so he gets yeah thirteen dollars a month. And my daughter's ten; she gets ten dollars a month. So um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's been good and. Um, the other thing that I haven't quite done yet, but I know is like on the radar is to really have them look at um, what they want to be when they grow up, but not from a standpoint of, Oh, I want to make money. So I'm going to become X, Y, Z. Like, but what are my passions and what are my talents and what am I going to really enjoy doing? And in all likelihood, I don't like the, my kids, certainly my wife and I are both like self-employed. So they may not go. They, they, I always joke with my wife, my kids are either going to go like, the factory worker route <laughs> to have like the most stable, boring job possible, or they're going to go like crazy like us and be like self-employed entrepreneurs that are always like, you know, coming up with new ideas. Cause my wife and I talk about work all the time because we're both self-employed. We don't punch a clock. We don't have nine to fives. Um, so that's the next evolution of my work, my, my, my financial work with my children is uh, do they want to be entrepreneurs, you know, or, or at least helping them follow their passion um, so that they end up in jobs that they really love. Yeah, and there's no harm in switching. People switch their careers all the time. Oh yeah, I'm on my third. <laughs> like, yeah. like I was, yeah, at least third. I think if I were to sit down and add it all up, I've, I've tried a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah, definitely but, uh, for sure. Yeah, but I, I'm a, I'm a, and and the bank account, I really like that because they get the idea of like they know how much they've got and they know that they can like use it. So like sometimes they'll want to buy something, so we buy it on the credit card and then we transfer their money from their account to our account to pay for it, things like that. So that's they get a good a sense, idea. Yeah, they get a sense of okay. And I've told them like you're not making you, you, kids savings account have higher interest rates than adult savings accounts usually because it's like encouraging kids. And I do tell them like you're not going to make that much money from a savings account. Like I, I let them know this. Like you're not. When I was a kid, I remember thinking, oh, savings account. I'm gonna oh, I'm gonna make money. And it's like, yeah, you're gonna make a dollar a year. Like it's not going to change anything. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, and so when it comes to um, financial literacy, so what are the big things that you think every doctor should know about financial literacy? For sure. So for me, I think in everything I teach from medicine to finance, um, it's more actually important. I, I try to teach students. It's more important to know where to look for information mm -hmm. rather than just knowing everything. Because as doctors, we have to know so much, like just memorizing all the medications, their generic names, as well as their brand names. It's just like a lot. But if you just know where to look, then, you know, it, you can potentially expand your knowledge base by much more. So, you know, depending on, and also the other thing is, you know, depending on what stage of life you're at, it's not as useful to know about pensions if you're like just starting mm -hmm. practice, for example, right? Um, so when it comes to resources, I'm going to talk a little bit about maybe like online and then in-person resources just to organize it a bit. So if you're an audio visual learner, if you go on my YouTube channel, which is Breaking Bad Debt, there is a featured channels tab, or I think it's called channels. Mm -hmm. And there I've um, found some channels that I've watched and vetted to make sure that the content is practical. So it's not like those videos that are like how I became a millionaire day trading or, <laughs> or, you know, my best top stock picks for this year, for example, like those kind of things. There's a lot of those on mm -hmm. YouTube. Um, if you like to read um, on my Instagram, also breaking that, that there is a books highlight and there I've, um, put all of the books that I've reviewed. So if you wanted to read a review of the book first before 
getting the book, then you can read it there. Um, forums are also a really good way to get kind of like a second opinion from colleagues or strangers. So on Reddit, I like the subreddit called Personal Finance Canada. And on Facebook, I like the Physicians Financial Independence Group, where the moderators of the group are actually my co-lecturers at U of T Med. Um, and then finally, let's talk a little bit about in-person resources, where sometimes you actually need personalized advice that you might not be able to find online. So a lot of doctors will look towards a financial planner. And the purpose of that is to kind of help set goals for their money. You might even mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about what kind of advice you might give when people are uh, finding financial planners. But uh, the other thing is um, accountants, right? The accountants mm -hmm. are very valuable, especially when it comes to filing taxes for your corporation, if you're incorporated, um, as well as for your personal accounts. Um, lawyers. Some people will take on lawyers for incorporation. For myself, I just went with the Ontario Medical Association lawyers, mm -hmm. which is a bit cheaper. But if you're if your corporation is a bit more complex, then perhaps you might need a lawyer for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then bankers, those are very helpful for setting up a corporate and a personal bank account because you want to split your mm -hmm. like your business sole proprietor or corporate expenses from your personal expenses. You don't want like your, you know, CMPA uh, membership fees to be mixed in there with your mm -hmm. Netflix subscriptions, <laughs> like things like that, right? It's, it's really bad um, disorganization when the accountant is doing your taxes and they might end up charging you more for tax filing if you're giving them very disorganized statements. Um, and then lastly, like this one's a little controversial, but insurance brokers, the reason I say it's controversial is because sometimes people might get sold whole life insurance when it actually isn't needed mm -hmm. just because they can pay high commissions for the insurance brokers themselves. So I remember, so I'm like in my twenties and I was being sold whole life insurance mm. um, by an insurance broker when I was no kids, no dependents mm. or anything like that. Right. So it didn't make sense. Um, but the other thing that insurance brokers can provide you with or connect you with is disability insurance. Mm -hmm. And that I actually do think has value because as a physician, um, your main source of income is yourself, right? And when you can no longer work and no longer can produce income, then that's when disability insurance kicks in. The other thing is, you know, life insurance will only cover you on death, not mm. On disability. And that's what some people might get confused about, right? They're right. like, oh, I have life insurance. So it'll help me when I get disabled, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those are all, those are just a very quick overview of some of the in-person resources um, doctors can approach, but it also might be a very valuable to discuss these resources with a financial planner, especially for example, if getting life insurance can be mm -hmm. suitable for your personal situation. So I was just wondering, what are what are your kind of kind of thoughts on this as well? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I totally agree. Like two things that you said that really hit home was um, it's more important to know where to look for the information than know it all the information. I really agree with that, like hundred percent. Like before I became a financial advisor, I read lots of books about. I was interested in this in this in the subject, and so I read a lot of books, but I never took action. And I think it's because I just felt like I had to keep knowing more before I could take action. Yeah. And I think I a lot of doctors are like that. Yeah. Like just that yeah. analysis paralysis or that like FOMO of like, oh, what if there's another thing I should be doing instead? Um, so that's certainly 100% agree. And disability insurance. Um, I typically will not work with people who don't have disability insurance because for me, it's so important like I've, I've, I've met people and um, who have like hundreds of thousands of dollars saved up, but they don't have any disability insurance. And I'm like, if you become disabled and your income dries up, you know, how long is that really going to last you? Like, or like, you know, how much farther behind are you going to be? Even if you did drain all your savings and then went back to work because you've recovered, like now you're way behind. And so I'm a really big fan of disability insurance because I do believe that everyone's greatest asset, and especially in high income earner, is their ability to earn an income. And until you get to a point in life where you've got something else that's creating that, whether it's income properties or investments, like you're on the hook for it. So I will it'll definitely iterate that. Um, one of the things that I think everyone, every doctor should know is that if you are confused about finances, you are not alone. And I think that when I like behind closed doors, so I, I sent, I put out a survey a while back to Canadian physicians in different places and I asked them a few questions around finances. 
And the two big questions that I found pretty shocking are the, the responses. One was I asked them, um, you know, where, where are you at with finances? Are you completely confused and you don't know where to start? The, from there to I've got it all figured out. Over 50%, I think it was like 52% of respondents said that they were completely confused as to where to start and they, and they didn't know who to trust. And I thought that's a really big number, <laughs> like 50 plus percent are confused. And these are people who have access to every resource online. Like, you know, everyone knows how to Google, like you can, you can resource, but it wasn't like that knowledge didn't lead to certainty. And so I just say to people, like, if you feel that way, you're not alone. Like there, and I think that's the other misconception is a lot of physicians. I was talking to a doctor about this yesterday. They feel like everyone else has it all figured out. Like, oh, everyone else has it all figured out. And I'm like, yeah, some of the more vocal people may have it figured out because that's where there are, because you're not going to find necessarily a lot of doctors saying, man, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I'm going to like tell the world, I don't know what I'm doing. It's usually the ones that are like, have a real passion for finance and have it all like, you know, figured out. Um, and then the other question I asked that was also surprising was I asked when it comes to the corporation, I said, do you feel like you're making the most of it? You're not sure if you're making the most of it, um, you know, or do you know you're making the most of it and like you're set? 82% of people responded that they were either only somewhat confident or not at all confident that they were using their corporation efficiently. Um, and that also hit me pretty hard. Like, wow, 82%, like that's a pretty high number. So that's my, the first thing I'd say is you're not alone. If you, if you feel any of this, <laughs> like just know that you're not alone. And the other thing I'd say is, um, yeah, definitely. I'm a big fan of like before I became a financial advisor. Um, so I got into the business because my financial advisor was like, Galen, I think you'd be good at this. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing that job. <laughs> like, It's not for me. I'm a teacher. I'm going to teach. Like, I'm not going to take this, 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 this new job. But eventually I thought it made a lot of sense, partially just for me to really educate myself on what to do. Now, before I became one, I didn't find one that I trusted. Like my own guy, like I never really bought anything from him. Um, I was a terrible client. Like he spent a lot of time kind of educating me, but I never felt confident in what he was telling me to do. Um, and a lot of people are in that boat, I think. Like they haven't found someone that they've clicked with really well. And they're, they're like, you know, wondering what their motives are. Um, so definitely look around. Like, you know, I personally... I do fee-based planning for people. So a lot of doctors are pretty attracted to that approach where you pay for advice either by the hour or by the plan. And it's very transparent. Like, and, and, it, and you can actually bill your corporation. Your corporation can pay for the plan. Um, so I, I have a number of physicians on whom I'm working on financial plans right now for their retirement planning, mostly for the corporations. Um, where at the end of the day, they can take that plan and they can implement it by themselves. They can implement it with another advisor. They can implement it with me, but they know exactly what they're getting, what they're paying for, what they're getting. And there's no strings attached and no commissions behind the scenes that I'm earning that they don't know about. So I want everyone to know that exists because not every doctor knows that that's an option. Yeah. And I know on the forums, like I guess that's the good thing about the forums is you get the public's second opinion, right? And mm -hmm. there have been recommendations of fee-based financial planners on there as well, based on your local area, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm also really curious, like um, in terms of the credentials, when you're looking for a financial mm -hmm. planner, um, you know, what are some of the credentials you should be looking for and what, uh, what, what would be like a good financial planner other than the fee-based aspect, for instance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, one of the things I always say to people is I say, I wish, I wish we, I wish you could legislate ethics. <laughs> yeah. Like I wish we could say, okay, this person has these letters after their name. We know they're going to be ethical. Um, there's no way to, to like, you know, yes, I have a fiduciary duty. I, I sign off on a, 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 a every year for a number of different governing bodies and the certified financial planner institution that I am going to put my clients interest first. Um, is there any is there any way to make sure that every advisor is doing that? It's there's not to be honest. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it, you know, I have a soft spot for even for people who don't have a designations yet, because I think I was still a really good advisor in my early days, even before I got my certified financial planner designation. But I will say that um, you know if. So, so, so you can't call yourself a financial planner in Canada unless you have your certified financial planner designation. And to pull back the curtain a little bit, you might find this interesting. Um, there's been legislation out that says that anyone who... I, don't, I haven't followed it recently, but I know it came out a while ago and it said basically that anyone who's in this industry that doesn't get their certified financial planner designation by X date uh, excuse me, won't be able to get it after that date if they don't have a university education. 
It was kind of a weird thing for them to say, but most financial advisors don't have a university education. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the reality. So a lot of advisors are scrambling to get their certified financial planner designation because they know after a certain date, they won't be able to get it. And um, and so what I was going to say about that was, um, yeah, so you see a lot of advisors scrambling to get it because, oh, because if they don't have it, I think they have to refer to themselves as a sales as a salesperson or something like that. Yeah. And they don't want to refer to themselves as a salesperson. Um, so, I mean, certified financial planner, like I will say, like if someone has that, um, well, to be honest, like years ago, some people were grandfathered in, so they didn't have to do much for it. There was a blip during the pandemic where... I feel that the ways of getting it were probably a lot easier than when I had to do it, but maybe that's just sour grapes. I don't know. Um, but you know, if someone's got their certified financial planner designation, they're taking it pretty seriously. Like you don't study 1200 pages of textbooks and go through a total of like nine hours of exams for no good reason. Like that's someone who's in it to win it. So, I mean, you know, not to, not to discourage anyone from working with someone who's new in the industry, but, um, you know, that, that is the designation I would be looking for. And I mean, you, to do fee-based planning or fee for service planning, you have to have a financial, you have to have a CFP in Canada. Like you're not allowed to charge yeah. by the hour otherwise. And I always tell like my students when they're looking for a financial planner, there are, um, so you know how like in Ontario, we have the CPSO, which is where mm. you can search up your doctor to see when they graduated, if they've had any regulatory dis- right. or disciplinary action against them. Um, I believe there are that for the financial planners mm-hmm. as well. So I know you mentioned the CFP, like the CFP website actually has like a, a search option. I remember yep. where you can put in a financial planner's name and you can see if they're actually licensed to yes. be a financial planner in Canada right. as well. Yeah. And there is there. I mean, I don't know if it's widely publicized, but like I get as a CFP, I get a magazine every once in a while. And in there, it talks about who's been subject to disciplinary actions. And, and oh, even say, we it, get even, that. it even says like, who's had to declare bankruptcy. And I'm like, man, wow. that's kind of, that's kind of brutal. <laughs> like, like, I hope I don't have to declare bankruptcy and have my name published in a magazine. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, I guess people should know, right. If their financial planner is going through financial distress, I don't know. But um, yeah, there is that um, where you can, like, yeah, I'm on there. I think it's called like, uh, I mean, it's FP Canada or find a planner or something like that. Like, like I'm like, so I'm licensed in um, BC, Alberta, Ontario, British Columbia, Manitoba. Sorry, I already said BC, Nova Scotia. Um, so I'm licensed in a lot of provinces. So sometimes when, when people are meeting me online and they're like, I want to make sure this guy's legit. I send them all the links to uh, certified finance, FP Canada, where they can look me up and advocates. Advocates doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, there is no um, formal association that governs every financial advisor in Canada. Um, it, it does not exist. So advisors don't have to be part of any association if they don't want to be. So if you, I voluntarily am a part of Advocates, which is the most widely recognized association of financial advisors in Canada. That's another one I'd look for. Like I, I feel like I don't know. I feel like people should belong to an association, and Advocates has worked hard to become the association like it's it's gone through different readings at like a legal uh, at, at a governmental level and all that it still hasn't gone through ever but you know it is kind of bizarre that our world doesn't have like this one governing body that makes sure that we're doing what we should be doing and like the way we should be doing it so advocacy is a voluntary thing but that's what i send to people i send the link to look me up as a financial planner certified financial planner and the link to look me up as a member of advocates. And I mean, there's a smattering of other places, obviously, where people can find out more about me, but those are the places and like the link to, to see my licensing and stuff like that. That's also like public uh, knowledge. Yeah. And the other thing I guess your listeners could benefit from is um, a lot of times people have different um, letters after their name, just like in medicine, mm. <laughs> a lot of financial planners have many letters after their name as well. So there's often this, um, uh, this, I guess, resource called the Secure- Canadian Securities Administrators National Registration Search. They also see like what kind of um, where they're registered, what type of registration they hold. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the other one I've seen is um, the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. Um, mm-hmm. So IIROC, and they mm-hmm. also have like a disciplinary search specifically for financial advisors when it mm-hmm. comes to what investments they've used as well. Yeah. So that might be helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the letters after the names for financial advisors, I find it yeah. uh, almost 
comical, like how many letters you can get after your name, because everyone, every year, I feel like I'm getting something in the mail. That's like, get our designation, like, you know, the new designation. So all I put after, like, so for example, in out in the world, if someone has a master's and then they get a PhD, they don't refer to themselves as, as a, like, so I have a master's in education. And if I went off and got a PhD in education, I wouldn't put after my name master's and PhD. I just put PhD. Like, at least that's the way I see it. Like one kind of, you needed one to get to the other, right? So you don't put right. both. Um, but a lot of times in financial planning, like people leave them all. Like even if you, you know, like basically I could have gotten a CHS on the way to becoming a CFP. Um, I didn't, I just went straight for CFP, but a lot of people, they'll get the CHS and they'll leave it and then they'll get their CFP and then they'll get a certified executor uh, advisor. Then they get like a CEA after their name. And then if they become what's, an, I mean, there's so many, like there's the personal financial planner, professional financial planner designation. Uh, most of them are like either a subset or like a part of the CFP strain, or sometimes they're completely apart. Like um, certified executor assistant, for example, is one that I've I've I will get it at some point in time. I I paid for the course years ago, but then all my client, all these people started asking me if I had my CFP. So I was like, I better get my CFP because people keep asking. And I wanted to be able to do fee based planning because a couple of years ago, people kept saying to me, Galen, like we've had a couple of meetings. It's been fantastic. I would gladly write you a check for all the time that you've given me. Uh, can I do that? And I would have to say no, because I wasn't allowed. And so I said, I better get my CFP so I can start doing that and start doing fee-based planning. Um, but yeah, like the number of letters after people's names in this industry can be almost comical sometimes. Like it's a lot of letters sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, ours too. Yeah, yeah. No, my um, I have a client. Every time he sends me an email, he's got like letters. And even my dad, like my dad's got a bunch of letters after his name. And sometimes I'll Google them every once in a while and be like, what is the, what are these letters? And like, why are they after like, aren't you just a doctor? But then of course, there's all these other things that can be going on as well. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, it's been really great getting your insight um, from what you've garnered uh, with your background of, um, you know, everything about your background that you've brought to the table around this topic has been really fascinating and everything that you've learned over the time of your passion of uh, learning about finance and then turning around and teaching your colleagues. Um, so I really, really appreciate the time that we've uh, spent together tonight. Yeah, not a problem. I really appreciate it as well, especially um, when I got to talk about my two interests and combine them, like the financial interests with the equity, diversity, and inclusion interests, um, and just merge them into one podcast episode. Yeah, I love it. I get totally happy to provide any sort of platform that I can for that those topics. Absolutely. Um, any final things that you want to make sure people know before we finish up? Um, I think the biggest takeaway from this is probably, you know, you don't have to know everything yourself. It's always important to talk with other people about finances and go on forums, get second opinions through in-person and online resources. Um, you know, it's it's so important, especially um, we don't see this with doctors. We don't see patients always going to doctors to get a second opinions. Mm -hmm. But I think often, you know, in the finances, financial industry, you do have that luxury of doing that mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then I guess like the final thing is, especially for women of color, mm. always advocate for yourself, um, you know, and by advocating for yourself, you also indirectly advocate for others as well. You're setting that precedent um, for funding for diversity work uh, for those coming after you. Amazing. No, thank you so much. That's amazing thoughts to end on. Well, thank you so much, um, Stephanie, for joining me tonight. I really, really appreciate it. Same to you, Galen. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for having joined me on this episode of the Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I truly appreciate you taking the time to do so. It really warms my heart to see the numbers of people listen to each episode go up. It's just a lot of fun. Feel free to scroll through the other episodes. I've interviewed a lot of really amazing people and just want to get their insights out there to Canadian physicians. If you're left wondering anything about your financial plan, whether you're making the most of your corporation, are you on track for retirement, are there more efficiencies you could be finding, feel free to head on over to galenhelpsdocs.com. That's G-A-L-E-N helpsdocs.com. You can read more about the work I do, uh, my offer of fee-based planning, which is pretty popular among medical professionals where you pay for a plan, you don't have to buy a product. Go over there, click a button, book a free call. We'll have a quick conversation and see if you're a good fit for the fee-based services. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Take care.